The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, reading verses 12 through 13. We're continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and here to the end of chapter 7, the end of the sermon, Jesus is really applying all that he has taught in a number of applications he draws. He's been teaching about the character of the disciple, of any disciple of his, the heart righteousness that is to to characterize every follower of Christ, that our walk in him, our life in him is not to be merely lip service or outward show, but it's to be from the heart. We've seen the contrast that there is only one true master, Jesus Christ, that there is only to be one true treasure which is our life in Jesus, our communion and fellowship with Him. And there is only one right ambition, and that is to walk with Him and to please Him. And now he's pressing the application, have you ever committed yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ through faith in Him and to walk to please Him in love to Him and obedience to Him? You can't just be an admirer of Jesus Christ or a spectator when it comes to Him. And so we come to verse 12. Our focus will be on verses 13 and 14 this morning. Hear God's word. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. I want you to picture yourself this morning traveling along a road, and walking along with you on this road are many other travelers so that there's hardly room to walk. Everyone seems to be carrying something or pulling something, all of their goods and possessions, so that the whole affair is really quite a sight to see. And as you travel along with this bustling throng, you round a bend in the road and you see up ahead a large gate. As you approach it, you see that it's not so much a gate as it is simply a massive, fancy entrance for there doesn't appear to be any kind of gate part that is ever closed. It's an open gate, and all around the entrance there are lights flashing and and billboards beckoning you to travel through the gate. And as you strain to catch a glimpse of what's behind this wide gate, you see that the road, the way, becomes even wider and smoother, and it seems to be lined with fast food places. You can get stuff to eat and shops to help you along your way. But as you approach it, you push through through the crowd to the side of the road 
to pause and think before you continue on, and you're not certain that this is the way you want to go. And as you stand there, you notice a little wooden gate almost hidden in an overgrown hedge by the side of the road. This gate is small. It looks like you would have to bend down and squeeze through it to get in. And over this gate there hangs a little sign, Enter Here. And so you think to yourself, Ah, so there is another way. But you can see that this way is going to be difficult. It's overgrown with thorns, and there are rough places you can see beyond. And you ask yourself, which way should I go? It's one or the other. You must choose between these two gates and these two ways. Now, that's my own speculative imagination, kind of adding to what Jesus says here. But clearly, Jesus is portraying for us the inescapable choice that is before every person when they hear the gospel, the inescapable choice of what he sets forward. And he speaks of this narrow gate and hard way leading to life. I would like to think about this analogy that Jesus uses so powerfully under these three headings. First, a narrow gate. Secondly, a hard way. And finally, a destination of life. First, then, we want to think about a narrow gate. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. He is speaking of receiving salvation through faith in his name and by becoming a disciple through turning away from your sin and turning to Christ. There is no other entrance to the Christian life and to eternal life than through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And all other so-called entrances are just part of the wide gate that leads to destruction. And Jesus is saying, you must enter by this narrow gate. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we hear it described in other words, where John writes, but to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not through natural birth, whether you're born in a Christian household or whether you're born in the United States. You're not a Christian by birth. You have to enter through the narrow gate only by being born of the Spirit, born from above. And it's narrow in the sense that it calls for faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith includes a deep and humble repenting of our sin and turning to him. In other words, there's a cost to following Jesus. He must be first in your life. He must be Lord and master of your life. There can be no other idols or treasures or lords that take his place. And so faith means trusting in Jesus Christ and also turning away from anything else you would trust in, that you would trust in your own merit or goodness or works. It doesn't mean that you will be sinless from then on once you enter that narrow gate, but it says that your basic attitude toward your sins and your sinfulness has changed so that now you want to hate and forsake your sin because it is displeasing to God by the help that God gives you. 
You can't take your love for sin through the narrow gate. It will get caught on the gate, so to speak. We were visiting Oxford University the other week, seeing the sights there, and one day we wanted to um, tour the college, one of the colleges of Oxford, of which there are many. And so we were going into Christ Church College, which is one of the most famous ones. And that college has these beautiful, immaculate cricket lawns. Kids, that doesn't mean there are crickets in those lawns. It means that that's where they played their version of baseball. But these lawns were just manicured like a golf green. And obviously, they didn't want people messing them up. And so to enter, at least at that particular entrance on the road that we were on, you had to work your way through this massive wrought iron gate that stretched across the whole road and the walks and everything. And you had to go through this one place in the gate that was like a tunnel through the wrought iron. It was very tall, but you had to wind your way through this very narrow part. And the construction of this gate was such that it made it impossible to carry much of anything through it. You could get through with a backpack but you probably would have to take the backpack off and carry it. Clearly, the gate was intended to keep out bicycles and other things like that. And in fact, when we were going through, we saw a couple with a baby in a stroller coming from the opposite direction trying to get out. And they had to take the baby out of the stroller, fold the stroller up in its various compartments, and you know, squeeze through each of them holding various things and get through this gate. But they managed to do it, but it was quite a feat. A narrow gate in Luke chapter 14. It says that great crowds followed Jesus. And we know that in the Gospels, this happens regularly. Jesus loved the people. He loved the crowds. He loves the world. Jesus had compassion on them. And we know that he healed the sick and and taught them and fed them at times and was merciful to them. And they they often pressed upon him. But at this point in the Gospel of Luke, at this particular junction, he turns to the crowd, we find Luke record. And he says to them, he warns them, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's speaking about this narrow gate He loves the crowd. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's showing himself as the all-sufficient Savior. But he's acknowledging and warning them that it's a narrow gate. And at that point in Luke 14, he even talks. There's that verse about you must hate your father, your mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. That's a narrow gate. And we know that doesn't mean it's not an encouragement to hate anyone. He's speaking in relative terms. In other words, there can be no one higher in your loyalty or love and affection than your God. Your devotion must be to him first and foremost. So even the good and wonderful gifts of God in this life, even these wonderful relationships he gives us, even these must be submitted to his lordship. And there may be a cost involved, even in those relationships in coming to faith in Christ. It is a narrow gate. You have to ask yourself, have I ever entered in that narrow gate? Have I counted the cost of giving my life to Jesus Christ, of trusting him as my Savior and Lord, and trusting him that he paid for my sins and forgave me, and entrust to him my very life? That's the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Children and young folks, I would speak especially to you. Maybe you came to trust in Jesus at a young age, and that's wonderful if that's the case. But often when that happens, it's typically in your teenage years that you begin to really feel and experience that cost of following Jesus Christ in your life. You start to experience new temptations. You find that there is a powerful draw to the ways of the sinful world, and maybe even that's made more powerful by your friends, by your peers, that you experience this costliness, and your faith in Christ has to truly become your own at that point, not so much something you've received from your parents. And what I'm saying is that this point about the narrow gate should tell you, young folks, not to be surprised by that costliness of faith in Christ. It's part of the narrow gate. It's unavoidable if your faith is going to become a mature faith and if you're going to walk with Christ through your life. Well, secondly, we find the way is hard. It's a hard way. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The fact that the way is hard tells us that for everyone who comes to faith in Christ, the ongoing walk as a Christian is not an easy way. It is hard. There is opposition. There are difficulties. There is a battle against remaining sin. Even though you've repented of sin and turned away from it, now you're surprised by this battle with the sin that so easily arises in your heart. And there's a, there's a warfare against the devil and the sinful world around you that is pressing you into its mold. There will be this feeling of being a despised minority with almost everyone else seemingly contented to be on the broad and easy way, going the opposite direction. Now, this verse about those who find it are few, and in verse 13, the one, the road that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many, those references to many and few, this verse doesn't tell us definitively that the number of the saved will actually be few compared to those who are lost. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see described the saved as, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So the ultimate number of the saved and the lost is kept hidden in the councils of our great and loving God. In fact, it's interesting that in Luke chapter 13, a man actually asked Jesus this very question. He says, Jesus, are the number of saved going to be few? What does Jesus say? He doesn't answer the question. That's not for us to know. He does tell this man, seek, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. That same imagery is used there. But there is no doubt about our verses before us that Scripture regularly portrays the Christian life as a walk that is always going against the crowds. It's a pilgrim journey. We are strangers and sojourners or exiles on the earth, 1 Peter 2.11 says. 
In other words, there's this feeling that we just don't quite fit in here. We're not going blithely down the pathway with everybody else. Uh, There's always this fact that we are citizens not only of earth, but of heaven as well. We have dual citizenships. And so Christians will always be out of step with the sinful ways of the world. They will always be called to march to a different drumbeat. The fact that the way is hard shows up in this way and in a thousand different ways in the Christian life. It, it will vary depending on your circumstances and maybe the time of life. It may be that for some of you, there are these mild forms of opposition in your school or at your job or in your neighborhood. You might go to the public school as a student and find that there are Christians there, yes, but the overwhelming impression is that there's really not sympathy with the Christian worldview. Or it might show up as serious, even deadly persecution of Christians in other parts of the world. That's what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing in places like Syria and Iraq. And there have been those who have had to flee for their lives. Some have lost their lives. And so the way is hard, and it shows up in believers in the way they face decisions, in the way they make choices, in the way they seek to love and serve others, sometimes at real cost, in the priorities that you set for your life and your time and your money and all those things. It shows up in their active striving against temptation. And even it shows up in the way Christians look at suffering, how they seek to trust in their Lord with suffering that is often something they do not understand the reasons for. And they have great difficulty with seeing and understanding what God's doing, but nevertheless, in the midst of very difficult suffering, entrusting their lives to their Savior and Lord. No wonder, if the way is hard, no wonder that Christians typically feel as if they are swimming upstream in a world that thinks very little of God and typically thinks that God and His Word have very little to say to someone in the modern high-tech world. You believe the Bible? How could that be? That's not an unusual response. The way is hard, Jesus says. Living with regard to God, living with a daily trust in Jesus Christ and a sense of His Lordship in your life will always be counter-cultural. For every generation of Christians, that will be the case. It might look different in the way each generation faces those counter-cultural issues, but it will always be there. Jesus wants his disciples to know what the way of life looks like. Don't be surprised. Teddy Roosevelt was president for two terms And then, and you know, he was a pretty young man when he was elected, so he still had a lot of life left to live afterwards. And what do you do after you've been president? I guess nowadays they build presidential libraries and give speeches and so forth. But Teddy Roosevelt was a very active man. And he, at one point after his presidency, formed an expedition of associates and went down to the remote reaches of the Amazon on this journey. And it turned out to be a very, very difficult journey. Roosevelt almost died. There's a book on it that's called River of Doubt. 
It turned out to be a way that was much, much harder than he had ever expected. Well, often the Christian life is like that, much more difficult than Christians expect it to be. But we come to our third and final point, the destination is life. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. But verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life. What a contrast. The wide gate leads to destruction. And we know from reading other Scripture passages that this destruction is not annihilation. There's a theology of annihilationism that is false that says the soul is simply eradicated of those who are not saved. But that is not what Scripture teaches, and it's not speaking of that here. It's speaking of the awful reality of hell, which is a very sober, solemn thing to speak about. In 2 Thessalonians, we see a further description of this, that Paul is speaking of those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel. They haven't come to Christ, and they are, in fact, persecuting the new believers at Thessalonica. And he says this, using similar language that Jesus uses here. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That phrase, that final phrase, summarizes the essence of hell, to be away to be separated from the goodness and love of God. That's the destination of the broad way. But by contrast, Jesus holds forth this wonderful destination of life. The gate is narrow that leads to life. That single word sums up the blessedness that Jesus offers to all who would come to him and trust in him. He gives life in its fullest sense, abundant life now lived in fellowship with him, not without difficulties, not without strivings, not without the hard way, and then life eternal in glory with him forever. The glory of salvation summed up by life. There are two gates. There are two ways. There are two completely different destinations. This gift of eternal life in Jesus is never something that any of us can earn or merit. Even though it describes the way as being hard, it's not as if by going this hard way, we've earned life, not at all. This is life that's freely given by God. It is by grace through faith alone. But in another sense, this analogy, this description that Jesus gives us tells us that it's very costly. In Matthew 19, Jesus encounters a rich young man, and you probably know the story, but this rich young man comes up to Jesus. You can almost see the crowd parting for this well-dressed, highly respected young man, very successful, I'm sure, and he comes up to Jesus to ask him a question about eternal life. And he comes up and he asks, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Certainly, as the story unfolds, you see that he expects that he's done what is necessary. And Jesus kind of plays along with him. And he says, well, have you kept the commandments? And Jesus names a couple of the Ten Commandments. And um, the man responds to him eventually in verse 20, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? So he's standing there 
in a sense, very proud, and I've kept all the commandments. But has he really kept the Ten Commandments? Well, we know from studying the Sermon on the Mount, the answer is no, because the Sermon on the Mount is showing the spiritual depth and intent of the Ten Commandments. They're not just outward, they're deeply inward as well in terms of our attitudes. And so you can murder someone with hatred. And so Jesus says to him, really putting his finger on this man's, probably one of his most deeply loved areas, he says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is pressing on this man to show him that it's not his righteousness that's going to do it. He needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, in verse 22, the young man goes away sorrowful, the text says. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Those possessions kept him from entering through the narrow gate. They got caught on the wrought iron of that gate. He was passing up the very way of life. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching that to follow Jesus Christ, everyone has to sell everything they own. No, that's not the case. That's not the way it is. This was an exceptional situation to a specific man in a specific context that Jesus called him to that because he knew his heart. But the cost of following Jesus does mean that for all of us, all that we are, all that we have, all of it belongs to Jesus Christ to do with according to his will. For most of us, it doesn't mean we sell everything, but it belongs to him, and we must count that cost. In fact, in 1 Corinthians six twenty, it says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And we know that price was the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So to come to Christ is to receive his free gift of mercy and so enter life. But in so doing, you are also giving up your selfish independence, your ability to be the master of your life, to be in control, to be the Lord of your fate, so to speak. You're giving up your sinful pride. And the sorrowful ending to this man's story is that this young man must have had some sense that he was turning away from and turning down the offer of life because he went away sorrowful. We don't know if he later came to Jesus Christ. That's hidden from us. The offer of everlasting joy in God's presence, everlasting life, all of that he gave up for the never fully satisfying possessions of this earth, things that will rust and decay and spoil. That's just one example of the costliness of coming to Christ. I close by thinking about one of the most beautiful invitations Jesus ever spoke, and that's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, when Jesus talks about these same things in other terms. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice there, the promise is rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, instead of speaking of a gate, he pictures kind of an oxen or a mule in a yoke, in a harness, serving his master. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of like the narrow gate, but it leads to life. Yes, there is a cost. There is a yoke, but it's an easy yoke because Jesus has already carried the great burden of our sins on the cross. And so it's an easy yoke. It's a light burden. And Jesus offers rest for our souls. What another beautiful picture of life in Christ. And so I ask you, have you received from Jesus this blessed rest for your soul from the burden of your sin, from the guilt and penalty of sin which you deserve, which all of us deserve? That rest for our souls comes only through faith in the suffering Savior who gave himself, who endured the agony of the cross that we might enter through the narrow gate and have life that is life indeed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful picture that Jesus Christ gives us. We see how it speaks to each one of us, both at the entrance to the Christian life, and there may be those here this morning who haven't come to you through faith in Christ. We pray that you would work in their hearts and in their minds and show them the glory of Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only Lord. And for those of us who are on this pilgrim journey, Lord, we pray for strengthening to continue in the hard way for as many as you give us days on this earth that we might seek you and walk with you and continue to bow before you and to submit every aspect of our lives to you. And thank you for this wonderful destination of eternal life and knowing you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.